0: Hello from the Financial Times in London, I'm Esther Bintliff and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. The Netherlands is the best protected delta in the world, with centuries of experience in holding back the floodwaters. As climate change causes sea levels to rise, can Dutch expertise help save the world's cities that are most at risk? Or are things so bad that they will struggle to even save themselves? Simon Cooper has looked into this question and he's with me now to discuss what he discovered. Hi Simon. Hi Esther. So about a third of the Netherlands is below sea level, including the capital Amsterdam. You grew up in Leiden, is that also below sea level and were you aware of the risk of flooding when you were a child?
1: I'm fairly sure Leiden's below sea level. I must say I never checked during my childhood. There's also a lot of land that's not below sea level, but susceptible to river flooding because three great rivers above all the Rhine end in the Netherlands on their journey to the sea. So you're always close to a river or the sea. I mean, I grew up in Leiden, as you say, which is, I don't know, about five miles from the sea. And it's reclaimed land. The Western Netherlands is where most of the population lives. So you know, very large parts of the population and most of the economy is there, threatened by the sea, below sea level. And the funny thing is that because the Dutch have been so good since the disastrous flood of 1953 of keeping the sea and the rivers at bay, you barely think about it in your daily life. I mean, there are canals everywhere and you go fishing and you learn to swim as soon as you can because it's unsafe to live in the Netherlands not being able to swim. But generally, you just don't think about the threat of flooding. The water experts I spoke to for this story complain that the population as a whole is complacent. They assume the Netherlands will always be safe from the water.
0: Given the geographical factors at play, is it the case that Dutch history is sort of littered with flooding disasters up to a certain point? I think you mentioned the last very serious flood, which was in the 1950s.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Dutch spent centuries trying to deal with the water. So Pliny the Elder, the Roman author, was stationed there, I think, as a tribune in the first century AD. And he says, look, they're being flooded all the time, and they warm their miserable limbs by the fire of mud, and it's just terrible. And for centuries, being flooded and people drowning was part of living in that area. So... They reclaimed land from the sea. They built the dikes. They did their best to maintain the dikes. It didn't always go well. So, for example, 1421, thousands of people were killed in floods. Maintaining the dikes is always sort of what Dutch history has been about. It wasn't always done well. So 1953 is the watershed, literally. You get these disastrous floods which kill about 1,800 people in the Netherlands and another 300-odd in eastern England, something that I think the English have largely forgotten, but the Dutch haven't forgotten it. So after the 53 flood, the government says, right, never again. And they set up a commission. The commission says you have to build incredibly expensive defences. And it's going to take decades and cost a lot in tax in this country that has been left low by the war, which is really dirt poor with people emigrating to the United States and Australia. And the Dutch government says, yes, we'll just do it because we can't have this again.
0: One of the things you write about in the cover story you've done for the FT Weekend magazine is something called the Polder model, Can you just tell us a little bit about what that is?
1: Yeah, so a polder is a piece of reclaimed land. It's a flat land. And when you take a train through the Netherlands, you see polders everywhere. These very flat fields often. You see some cows grazing. Next to the cow, there'll be a massive office block, because the Dutch use every inch of space in the small country, and canals to carry off the water. And the thing about the polder model is that they'd reclaimed this land, but the land was incredibly vulnerable because one flood and everybody drowns. So each district had to maintain its own dikes. And in the Netherlands for centuries, you had terrible religious disputes and people killing each other, you know, the Protestant Catholic Wars from 1568. And so there was always political division But in the end, it didn't really matter what religion you were, you had to maintain the dike. So they created this system of negotiation, compromise, you know, the local worthies being elected and sitting in committees about, you know, what's going on with our dike. And so it created this very Dutch politics that exists to today of compromise and pragmatism. You had to set the religious stuff and the ideology to one side in the end, you just had to work together to survive. And mostly things were managed very well. So today, Dutch politics, I mean, I I think of it as a one-party system. You have different parties, but they're always in coalition with each other in one form or another. And so whether you're the centre-right BVD or green-left or the centre-left P van der E, you're always having to negotiate and deal with each other in a pragmatic way. And the Dutch call that the polder model and the verb is polderen. So polderen means to sit down and hammer out a compromise that nobody is going to get really excited about.
0: I mean, it does feel as though, as we're seeing sea levels rise, that kind of model of cooperation is going to be more and more needed around the world. But I mean, the other thing, obviously, is money. Do we know roughly how much the Dutch spend each year on flood defences?
1: Well, money, I mean, this surprised me when I was researching the story. Money, in a way, is the easy bit. I mean, the Dutch have saved money by spreading their spending on dikes over 700 years. But nowadays, they spend about a billion euros a year on flood defences, you know, which given that most of the country is susceptible to floods is really not bad. It's a bit more than 0.1% of GDP. So the average Dutch person just really doesn't notice it. And obviously, if you're doing it from scratch, like New Orleans now, I mean, New Orleans, which is a sort of similar situation to the Netherlands, has spent $15 billion, or the US has spent $15 billion on levies, etc., protecting New Orleans since 2005. But if that's the cost of the survival of a place, it's actually not that bad. So wealthy countries can do this. The bigger problem is that they don't have a Polder model. They don't have this pragmatic, compromise, long-term spending, which the Dutch do. So you spend on dikes even when there's no crisis, even when you haven't been flooded in decades. You just do it all the time. We know in the US, for example, that there's just a big problem of spending on any infrastructure. So they won't even do it on potentially life-saving infrastructure like dikes and levees. So you have to think long term, which is a problem in many societies where spending is done in the political rhythm. So the new government, the new president will spend something and the next one will reverse it. The Dutch don't do that. It doesn't really matter who's in government. This money gets spent. And the other thing is that you have to have a national program. You can't say, well, you happen to live in the two square miles that's most susceptible to flooding. So you must find the couple of billion it will take for you to protect yourself against the water. No, this is a national thing. So we have a national plan and national taxes to raise the money for water spending, even though it can be a bit more if you live in a water-threatened district. Broadly, the whole population pays. And the other thing is that good defenses only really work when it's a national strategy. Because if you build a dike or a levee to protect your factory or your neighborhood or your apartment building, I mean, you see that in Miami where some buildings have their own seawall then you're actually endangering the neighbors because the waters will hit your seawall and be diverted to the neighbors. So you can't have some people protecting themselves and others not, which is very common along the U.S. coasts. The Dutch don't do that. The whole country is protected. So I came away thinking countries like the U.S. can afford it. Countries like Bangladesh perhaps not. But they don't have the long-termism, they don't have the culture of negotiation and compromise, and they don't have the national cooperation that you need to do this successfully.
0: Some of these places have been turning to the Dutch and asking for advice, is that right?
1: Yeah, so I went to the Maaslandkeering, which is the big storm surge barrier that protects the Rotterdam Harbour. One Dutch official described it to me as the front door of the Netherlands. So it's always waiting to close if the waters rise three meters. They haven't since it was completed 23 years ago. So a lot of foreign visitors come to the Massland Kiering because more and more cities around the world are thinking of building storm surge barriers. The Italians are thinking about it. Venice has some protection, maybe not enough. George P. Bush was a recent visitor. He's the Texas land commissioner, I think. He's the nephew of George W., And George P. Bush is trying to think of ways to protect Houston. And ironically, it's oil refineries from the rising waters, which are caused, of course, by the carbon emissions made by those oil refineries. And so they come to the Netherlands and they look at these models of what the Dutch do and see if they could work in their own countries. And to some degree, the model is the easy bit. The infrastructure is the easy bit. You can build a storm surge barrier, but you then have to keep monitoring, adapting it, spending on maintaining it, and also, given that the waters are rising, checking every couple of years, how long will my barrier last? Are we going to need to build a whole new one? Are we going to need to build it out bigger? Because if you build it for, say, a metre of rising waters, it might not be able to save you if the water rises one and a half metres.
0: And apart from the marshland clearing, there's other flood defence strategies that are being used by the Dutch
1: yeah, I mean, it's a whole system of dikes. If you walk along the Dutch sea coast, you don't see the waterfront properties that you see in American real estate ads where your deck overlooks the ocean. In the Netherlands, nobody lives on the beach. You have the beach and then you have the dunes, which are these man-made hills of sand that stop the sea coming in. And you can only live behind the dunes. Then you have these sluices which can open or close depending. So the Rotterdam Harbour, the the Maslon Keering, is open because I was standing by the keeling watching ships coming in and out on the way to Britain and elsewhere. And it's able to close. It's like a door that's open. It's able to close if the waters rise. So it's a very flexible and complex system that's different in every place in the country, but that is all interconnected.
0: You look at various scenarios for how much the sea level will rise by the end of this century, based on whether or not the Paris climate targets are met. What are the most optimistic and pessimistic predictions and how accurate are they?
1: Nobody knows. I mean, who knows what the planet will be like in 2100, but you have a range of scenarios. So I think the IPCC says it's probably going to be a rise in the sea level of somewhere under a meter, but it's not impossible that it's a meter sea level rise. The problem with the ICC's forecasts is they have tended to be too optimistic. So in climate science, you get a lot of the phrase faster than expected. You know, the Antarctic is melting faster than expected, Greenland too, et cetera. And that's partly because emissions just keep rising. And so the Dutch Meteorological Agency warned the government, look, we could well have a rise of two meters in sea levels by the end of the century, which would be terrifying. It's unlikely, but it could happen. And then the Dutch system would need to be fully updated, really totally renewed. And countries, cities all over the world, if it's two meters, are going to have a massive problem. So the Dutch are preparing for all sorts of different scenarios. And because it's a long-term nation, I mean, the Dutch actually have a central planning bureau, which sounds Stalinist, but they do actually make very long-term plans for their society. So you can't just think of 2100, because if you're building a new housing estate, let's say, you'd hope that it's going to be there after 2100. We have a lot of homes that are 200 years old. If you're looking, say, 110, 120 years ahead, is that housing estate going to be flooded? All the infrastructure we build now, if you're thinking on that kind of timeline, the uncertainties are huge. So the Dutch say, let's look at all the scenarios, including the worst ones. And one day that worst case scenario will most likely be reached, even if it's not in 2100 at some point later down the road.
0: That kind of forward planning sounds very sensible. In terms of what other countries are doing now to prepare for these predicted rises in sea level, What kind of strategies are they coming up with? Are they using the Dutch model or are there other alternatives?
1: Well, Bangladesh and Vietnam, which are just hugely threatened countries with large river deltas, they have written delta plans. I mean, the Dutch plan that they wrote after 1953 is the delta plan. And the Dutch have advised Bangladesh and Vietnam, which, of course, are much less rich, less well-governed places, on how to think about coping I think it's quite likely that Bangladesh certainly is just going to have to have a strategy of migration. Already that's happening, that people migrate from Bangladesh's river delta, which is increasingly just not accessible for much of the year, to the capital, Dhaka. In the US, around New York, New York is a long-term city. New York's been there over 400 years. There's a lot of institutions, a lot of companies, banks, educational institutions, museums, etc., that think we are going to be in New York forever. And so New York Unlike, say, Miami is an American city that thinks long term, but even this is having an enormous trouble agreeing on how to protect itself against the waters. There's all sorts of local neighborhood groups which oppose certain plans. You have the president and New Yorker himself tweeting that New York's 119 billion storm surge barrier project, you know, which is just one of the various options New York is looking at. He says it's ridiculous and it won't work and it will look ugly. So even New York isn't really anywhere like the Dutch level of forward planning. And I tend to think if New York, you know, about the wealthiest big city in the world with a long-term horizon, if that can't save itself, what hope is there for other flood cities like Shanghai, Mumbai, Miami, Jakarta, which have all these problems and none of New York's advantages or fewer?
0: Yeah. You did mention briefly that in some places they're thinking about moving to higher ground altogether. And I know in your article, you talk about Indonesia planning to move its capital. Is this something in the very long term that the Dutch might also have to consider, given how much of their country is below sea level?
1: It is something that they're starting to look at. I spoke to a very interesting woman called Marilyn Hasnos, who's at Deltares, which is a Dutch research institute. In Delft, Delft is really the Dutch capital of water thinking and Hasner drew up various scenarios for 2100 and essentially it's should we stay or should we go you can think of various ways of continuing to live exactly where the Netherlands is or you could say well we might have to start abandoning by 2100 parts of the Netherlands So in the southwest, where the floods of 1953 happened, not very densely populated by Dutch standards and in the north, you could allow the waters to come in and flood areas to take the pressure off more densely populated areas. You could start building floating buildings, a floating airport, or you might simply withdraw a lot of the population to the higher ground, more in the eastern part of the country. So these are things you need to think about now, because now is not just when you're building your next generation of storm surge barriers, but now is also when you're building your next housing. Can the Dutch still concentrate their population in this river delta where I grew up, which increasingly will be ever farther below sea level? Because we talk about rising sea levels, but what's also happening in most of these places around the world is the land is subsiding. And Jakarta is the most extreme example. It's subsiding by 10 centimeters a year in parts of the city because people are taking out the groundwater, drinking the groundwater, drinking the groundwater. But at the same time, as seas are rising by some certain number of millimetres a year, the land is going down sometimes more quickly than that. So I looked at a projected map of the world in 2050 with the idea that really the population keeps moving to the coasts and river deltas. And you think, well, actually, maybe they won't. Maybe in the US, people are going to abandon or depopulate to some degree New Orleans, Houston, Miami, even New York and Boston and also leave Los Angeles and Las Vegas and Phoenix because of drought issues and the difficulty of getting drinking water. And then the US population would focus more around the Great Lakes region where you don't have the same flooding risk and where you have a lot of potential drinking water sources. So the US kind of has it easier because Americans are used to building new cities and they have a lot of space to go to. The Netherlands doesn't really have a fallback option. I mean, as some Dutch water experts, said to me half jokingly, we'll have to go to Germany and learn German. And this is real for small island states. Kiribati is hoping to move its population to Fiji. You know, I mean, you get really existential scenarios.
0: It's fascinating stuff. And the piece is fantastic. Thank you so much for doing it, Simon, and for talking to us today.
1: Thanks very much, Esther.
0: Thank you for listening. And if you want to read the piece, it will be on ft.com forward slash magazine. Don't forget, if you missed our recent episodes on the US Federal Reserve's communication problem, Vladimir Putin's power shakeup, or finance and climate change, you can subscribe and listen on all the usual podcast platforms.